Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. And uh, Brother Allen mentions a few times in his sermons he's going to pull a Mark Tyson. So (laughs) Um, I think he's referring to the fact that um, I'm very much type A behavior, which means if there's a set time for something to end, then I try to end by then. Um, I've had in my past people tell me, well, go to your finished. (laughs) You don't want to do that because we'll be here (laughs) a long time. And I don't mind. You know, we talk about Hebrews where it talks about uh, some Christians are dull of hearing. They don't have much attention span. I would love, you know, if somebody's preaching the word to sit there three hours, that that would be fine with me. But I wouldn't want to do it if it wasn't planned ahead of time. So so we're not going to be here three hours, Lord willing, but uh, we'll pick up and go till the time allows. Uh, Bow in prayer with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today that you've given us another opportunity to gather together, to fellowship, to be encouraged, uplifted, and comforted by your word. We continue to pray for Brother Allen, uh, that you would continue to give him strength. We pray for his family. We ask that you would allow him to be able to get well-rested and that you would allow them to return safely to us. Father, we pray that as we go to your word, you would give us the spiritual food, the nourishment that we need today, and that we would be able to take it and apply it in our lives to be pleasing to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, last uh, time we went through verse 23. And if you look at that verse again, it's where it said, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We know that, as I talked about, we started at the beginning of chapter 4, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, I believe. uh, I like to think that Paul is uh, trying to tell us things that are appropriate for us to live as Christians, how, what is appropriate and how God would be pleased for us to live as believers. Um, so in this verse, it says to be renewed. We went to Romans chapter 12, and we saw that um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So as believers, uh, once we're saved, we need to have a new way of thinking, and that doesn't happen automatically. I know it's preached that way in some churches that, um, because of a misinterpretation of a scripture in Corinthians where it says you become a new creation, you're a new creature. Uh, Yes, we are new in the sense that we have a spirit that's been quickened, that means made alive, and we now can have communication with God. Lost people, because they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, can't communicate with God because the way to God the Father is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can communicate with God, and the way we talk to him is through prayer, and the way he talks to us is through his word. So we need, that's how we get renewed, is to be in the Word. So I just wanted to uh, start from that point and now begin in verse 24, Ephesians 4, 24. And that she put on the new man. Uh, we're going to notice he'll go back and forth between um, what is the new man and the old man. There's different ways to look at that. As, um, as Christians, there are things that are appropriate that we need to put on, and there are things that are not appropriate, and if... Uh, in a Christian's life, and if we have them, we need to take those off. So it's the contrast going back and forth. So again, it says that she put on the new man, which the word after here has nothing to do with time, but if you think of it in the meaning of according to, 
which according to God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So those words, righteousness is that which is right. You can see the root of the word, that's what it means. It's what, that which is right, that which is good. And true holiness. Uh, we think of the word holy, it's uh, separate. It's, different. It's, it's to be separate from the world, apart uh, from the world. So true holiness. That's what he's instructing us as Christians to put on. Now, he's going to give us examples, and first he talks about what needs to be put away or put off. He says in verse 25, wherefore, that's a connecting word, putting away lying. So that's something that as Christians, if, if that's something that some believers are doing, that needs to not continue. That needs to stop. We saw... Um, the word true in the last verse. So we talk about truth and not lies. So, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor. Now, the word neighbor has probably changed a lot in the sense of what it was when the Bible was written, but the ideas are still the same. It's those near around us, those we come in contact to, which in the modern times, the age we're living, we are in contact with more people on a daily basis because through the means of uh, some people use social networking, some people use the old-fashioned way of picking up the telephone, or I say picking up, that's no longer something. (laughs) We hold it in our hand now instead of going to the wall like we used to. Um, All of the different things um, that we do now that we can communicate with people, but there are many people around us that are neighbors, and he says we need to be speaking the truth with them. And it says the word for, that means because, We are members one of another. He said earlier, and this is being emphasized here again, that we're all part of the same body. So it wouldn't make sense to lie to another part of your body. You think about that in a literal sense of our physical bodies. If you're hurting somewhere and you just told yourself, (laughs) well, I'm going to ignore that. Um, The reason God actually gave us pain, I know we don't like it and it hurts, But pain is there for a reason. It's to tell us something wrong. There are some people actually born with a condition where they have no pain, and it's very difficult for them to live very long because they could cut themselves and bleed to the point of no longer living because they don't even know they've been hurt. So when we have pain, we need to pay attention to it. We need to find out what it is. Um, It's nice if we can figure out what's causing it so that can stop, but sometimes it's just the process of getting older, which is not fun and we may have things like arthritis and it's hard we can't stop the process of getting older so all we can do is try to find ways to make that easier but pain is there for a reason so if we ignore it that's not good and in the body of christ if there's pain in the body um, which would be caused of course if we're lying to one another instead of telling the truth that doesn't make sense he said we need to put that away we need to speak to the truth to one another because we're all part of the same body verse 26 be angry and sin not i've heard this uh, preached a lot um, <laughs> first of all you can notice from the scripture that it's inevitable that we are going to get angry that that's just human nature Uh, Jesus himself, remember, got very angry when he went into the temple and he found people doing things that were not appropriate. They were taking advantage of people. They were taking the balances which they used to sell things. They were putting weights on them so the people would have to pay more to get something. Uh, They were, in that sense, stealing from people. They were cheating people. And he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And he was very upset to the point that he was turning the tables over. So, 
we will get angry, but we don't want the anger to turn into sin because there is righteous indignation, and so we can get angry, and we, um, you know, different things. We all have different lengths of a wick, so to speak. Uh, There's a scripture in Romans where Paul says, live peaceably with all men, that means even lost people, as much as lies within you. And that scripture makes me think, God knows that each of us have different lengths of our wick, and maybe our, some of our wicks are shorter, and maybe we're more short-tempered. But we need to try to live peaceably with all people. It just makes more sense, and it makes things easier. So when does anger become sin? When we allow it to fester to the point that it, we, we were seeking revenge, and we want to do something to exact punishment. And the Bible says, again, Paul reminds us in Romans, he quotes from the Old Testament, but he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The first thing about that is God says, vengeance is mine, it belongs to him. It's God will take care of vengeance. We don't need to do that, that's not what our place... Because when we do that, we're actually assuming the place of God. We're saying, I'm going to be God now, and I'm going to judge that person, and I'm going to enact vengeance on them. And, that, and God says, no, it's mine. Then he says, I will, that's future tense, repay. So God's going to take care of it. He'll take care of it for us too, by the way, if we don't take care of things and make it right before the judgment seat. So that's something we need to be concerned about ourselves, not making, allowing anger to become sin, to allow it to fester. And if we go on in the scripture, it says, um, here again, verse 26, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't let it keep going on. If you go on to the next day, the more that that builds up in you, it's only going to get worse. Some people, and it goes on in the next verse we'll see in a moment, but it allows Satan to have a foothold, so to speak, because if we continue to hold a grudge, it gets worse. I have seen people very near death and ready to die, and they will not let go of something that they're holding a grudge about. And they have been miserable their whole life because of it. Now, he's going to go on to tell us what we should be doing is forgiving one another instead. Now, let's look at verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. So this word place means opportunity. It gives Satan an opportunity to get into our Christian lives and allow us to be focused on the wrong thing. That's enacting vengeance on somebody and holding a grudge. So we do get angry. That's going to happen. But don't let it become sin. That's what he's telling us. Verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more. Now, all of these problems we read about is not a problem for everybody to say, a Christian would lie and a Christian would steal. We are capable of doing anything that a lost person can do. Um, You know, we're not supposed to do those things and they're not appropriate, but it's telling us that's not what we should be doing. Now, he's going to contrast and say what we should do instead. But rather, let him labor. That Christian who's doing that, instead, if they would work word labor here, work, working with his hands the thing which is good, so that would help provide for him, and notice it goes on, that he may have to give to those that needeth, as the old English, we would say, who needs. So there are, if a person is working, not only would they be able to have the things they need, they would be able to see others who might have a need and be able to provide, then that eliminates that person having to try to get something Um, by means of stealing it. Um, I don't know about you. I think most people have someone in their family 
um, that maybe has a, a trouble. There's a lot of drug addiction now in the world, people with opioid, um, opiate addictions, and they're doing anything just to get that next bit of whatever they need to get at. And, and so I have a niece, sadly, that would go to the point of stealing to sell merchandise that she stole just to get whatever she needed or wanted to get. So that not, this not should be part of a believer's life. Now, I know in our system, we have in our government, in America at least, and most countries, there are systems to provide for those who can't work. There's you know, some people that are not able to have a job, and so we just don't leave them out in the cold. There are ways and means that they can um, be provided for. In the uh, beginning of the Christian church, you remember in the book of Acts, they specifically said to select deacons that would be those who would help with widows and orphans. Because in that day and age, if a, if a, if a woman's husband died, Women didn't work. They didn't have a means to provide for themselves. So the deacons in the church were to, to be, make sure that they were taken care of. And orphans, if the parents died, they would no way to take care of themselves. So there were things that were set up. Now, not all countries are like that. And most of, some of you may have visited the Dominican Republic. It's the same island. It's called Hispaniola. Same island as Haiti. Haiti's a third world country. And if you've been there, you know the poverty that's there. Dominican Republic, though, and it's probably maybe because they fear Haitians coming over, but they do not have a welfare system. They said everybody can do something. Even if a person is in a wheelchair, whatever, they can do something. So they have their whole society set up in a different manner. But the point is, uh, as Christians, it's telling us we need to be making sure that we're doing what we can, that which is good, and not only then providing for ourselves, but be able to help those who do have a need. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, I know for a long time when I would read that verse, I thought it meant using bad words. That comes up later in the chapter, actually, but that's not what this means. Um, there are lots of words, by the way, that, you know, depends on where you are, that's considered bad. Um, if somebody gets cut and they're bleeding, we don't think of that word as offensive to say the word bloody. But if you go to England, that's a, that's a bad word. So I think it's important as Christians, when we get to that part later, that we keep that in mind. There are certain words that are not appropriate for Christians. If you look at the end of the verse, you can tell, because it's the opposite, then what corrupt communication is. It says, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers. Notice the word edifying means building up. So the opposite of corrupt communication is saying something to another Christian that will help lift them up, to help build them up, saying something positive to them that's encouraging. And all the encouragement we get is from the word, so it's, that's what fellowship is. So corrupt communication is when a Christian is saying something for the intent of tearing down another Christian. As opposed to building up, it's tearing down. And you think Christians do that? Yes. Um, I know you've been in other churches before, and it, and it happens. It can happen anywhere. We just need to be careful. It's not appropriate. That's what the corrupt communication is here. It's saying things with the intent of hurting someone, tearing them down. Instead, we should be um, saying things that are that are beneficial, that are good, that are building up, that ministers grace just when they hear it. It's, it's, you know, it's good. It doesn't mean you have to make things up. But there are, if we look for the good, 
it makes a big difference. We look for the positive things rather than tearing down. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. I want to pause there a moment. If you were here at Sunday school, Jerry was teaching one of the references he made was in Hebrews. And in chapter 3, one of the things the nation of Israel did is grieve God because they were disobedient. They got, and so they were then in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and so we're instructed from Hebrews not to have the same heart of disbelief. And he brought out the word disbelief is ah, uh, the prefix in the Greek, no, and uh, the word for belief. So that disbelief or no faith. Because they, they stopped trusting in God. The word trust, believe, and faith are synonymous. They stopped doing that, and he's telling us don't do the same thing. Don't do the same thing as believers. So here it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby, in modern English we'd say, by which ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, that could be a whole other sermon in itself, so that isn't what I want to spend time on today, but if we were to just look at that briefly, um, there are people that teach that you can get saved and that you can get unsaved. And I've talked to people, there's a lot of churches that teach this, um, and you may know some of these denominations. And so I say, what about scriptures like this, sealed until the day of redemption? They say, well, you're sealed, but you can get unsealed. And I thought, well, wait a minute, how did we get sealed? When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's when we were sealed. It didn't involve works, and... um, And Jerry read that this morning in Galatians 2, not of works, lest any man should boast. We would have something to boast about. We would have something to brag about if we got it by doing something. Now, in our Christian lives, that through faith part is involved in what we do in our Christian lives. If we don't continue trusting and believing, we're going to get to the judgment seat of of Christ and hear um, that, you know, that he's displeased with us, that he's not... He wasn't um, happy with the way we lived our Christian lives and that we would not get to rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom. That doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean we don't spend eternity with him, but it's a big difference. Here it says sealed, and so that is something that God did. We didn't do it by our works, so we can't be unsealed. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor. I'm going to pause there a moment. We'll talk about each of these. Uh, so I suppose we know what bitterness is, and that goes along with the earlier verse where he said, be angry and sin not. If we continue to be angry, that's where bitterness starts to arise, and people get bitter, and they're holding the grudge. That's not appropriate as Christians. So he said, let all bitterness, all of it, not just some of it. Then he says wrath, that's the Greek word that means anger, wrath and anger, almost synonymous. But then the next word says anger. That's a little more intense, though. In the Greek word here, it's rage. It's not just angry, but this is, I mean, you've known the difference when, when someone is exhibiting rage. The word clamor, it has to do with noise. It's making a loud, loud, to the point, screaming. There's no reason why that has to be part of our Christian lives. So he's telling us, let all that, the bitterness and anger and rage and clamor, and evil speaking, and we already saw that connects to what we saw about corrupt communication, talking bad about others, trying to tear them down. Let all that be put away from you. So he's contrasting constantly the new man and the old man. Put off the old man, put away these things, and put on the new. 
It's something that we have to work on continuously because we're human, and we have these things, different ones of us have different weak points, we might say, and God knows what they are, and we know what they are. That's what we need to work on and put that off. And then it says, with all malice. You know, not just to the point of, of, of being bitter and being angry and having rage and screaming and yelling, but with the intent to hurt, this malice. Put that all off, he says. Verse 32. And here's the opposite. He's contrary. This is what we should be doing as Christians. Be ye kind one to another. Now, why would he have to tell you? You would think this would be automatic, that we would be kind to each other. But it doesn't always happen. I've been in churches, I remember a little growing up, and I saw two men fighting in the church. And I'll just give you a quick background of it so you see the ridiculous of it. But this was, as a young child, I was observing this. Um, The church decided to remodel, and it was an old, used to be an old house, so it didn't look like a church, it looked like a house. But um, this is in a little place near Cleveland, Ohio. And... um, so they took out what was originally there when it was first made a church. They put in old theater seats, so the kind, you know, theater seats are like, and they were all in there. So when they remodeled and put new carpeting, they took out the old theater seats, and so they bought folding chairs. Well, the argument was how to set up the chairs. Should we put the chairs and have an aisle down the middle or make them in block formation because it wasn't very big? I mean, you could only fit like 30, 35 people in the whole place. And two men that morning had a hold of one chair, pulling back and forth, yelling at each other about which way the chairs were going to be set up. So, you know, and you think, what if some visitors came in and saw that? Or people that um, maybe didn't even know the Lord Jesus Christ but were invited to a church and saw that going on. Why would they want to come back to that? So be kind one to another, tender-hearted. And he's going to give an example of how that we could be this tender-hearted. It says, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So we think about how God has forgiven us, and he continues to forgive us when we do wrong, and he wants us to be forgiving like that. Uh, Jerry read that again in Sunday school when the disciples asked about forgiving. How often should we forgive? And he said, even if somebody comes to you seven times in the same day doing the same thing, forgive them all seven times. And they're like, what? How do we do that? (laughs) This is the example. Forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. So when we remember that, we should keep that first and foremost and forgive one another, be kind and tender-daughtered, forgiving one another as opposed to having bitterness and anger and rage and talking bad about them with even malice to try to hurt them. Chapter 5. Be ye therefore, there's a connecting word, Ye, again, as I've brought out before, and I think you all know this, in, the old, we've, in English, modern English, we, all the, um, if you get a new Bible with a new translation, it's going to say you. And say, well, it's a big difference. Well, it's just that there's, there's different words for you in the Old Testament. There's thou and ye and you. They have the word you. But it all depends. Um, it used to be when you, know, you have first person, second person, third person. Uh, if you're familiar with that with grammar, and then singular and plural. So any language you study, you memorize that. First, second, and third person, uh, singular, plural. Well, um, so we say you in modern English, whether it's uh, singular or plural. If you're talking to one person, we say you are. If you're talking to a bunch of people, you say you are. We use the same. In the Old English, ye is plural. 
just to find that out. So it's talking about us as believers, as, as, as um, also we know who the book is written to, and Jerry brought that out when he read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Not only believers, but then also those who are faithful, he said. But be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Now, he uses this example. How to follow God. Follow God like dear children. What does that mean? Well, parents try to raise their children. They try to do things as examples for their children to follow. God has done things and shown us those things, and he wants us to follow those examples. So that's what he's talking about. Just like parents want their children to follow their examples, God wants us to follow him in that way. Verse 2. And walk in love. Now, the word walk, again, we've seen it started out in Ephesians 4 that way, the word walk. It has to do with how we live, how we go through our daily lives. It's, it's actually a very appropriate word when you think about it, because to walk, you know, you go from one place to the other. We get around that way. We, we walk here, we walk there, we go here. So it's, our, it's speaking of our daily lives and going through them. So how we live them. Walk in love. Here is, again, the example as, that word means like, Christ also hath loved us. The example he gave and how he loved us. What was that? It says, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. So you go back to the Old Testament, we understand, in order for the law to be fulfilled, Christ came and he, was, he had to be the kinsman's redeemer. Kinsman means he had to be related to us. So he took on humanity. Uh, the redeemer, that is, for, have to do with redemption. So he had to do that, and he did it, it says, an offering and a sacrifice to God. He gave himself up. That's what he did for us. Now, notice the difference, because here's how we might do something for someone else. Walking in love doesn't mean doing something for another Christian so that we will get something in return. That's not why Jesus, an offering and a sacrifice doesn't mean that. And that's what the example he's giving us. Don't just love somebody because of what you get back from it. We're supposed to do that just the way Christ did. It says, for a sweet-smelling savor. There's an old other English word, savor. If you think about it, in the old English, they had the word flavor. We still do. And, we have, and they had savor. We've, they're both two senses. Flavor has to do with taste. Savor has to do with smell. Now, in modern English, it's changed. We no longer say savor. We talk about how it smells, a sweet-smelling fragrance, something that smells good. Now, in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices. When they were burning the sacrifice, I don't know if you've, (laughs) I think all of us have experienced this. Somebody in your neighborhood might be grilling something, and you can smell. It's like, oh, it's that smell. It makes you hungry. It smells so good. So if you like that, it smells good. And he's talking about our lives being that kind of sacrifice, that it is a, smells appealing to God. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor, right? It's, he's saying like this. And it's, the sacrifice smells good to God. When we as Christians walk in love, it smells good to God. Verse 3. Here he contrasts the other things that are not walking in love. The first one, but, he contrasts, fornication. That's a whole group of sins, Adultery is one of them in that group, but any sin that's sexual is in this category, fornication. So he says, but fornication and all uncleanness, that's the word in the Greek is impurity, anything that's inappropriate, or covetousness. That word 
as we all know what it means to covet, but it comes from the root word to mean for greed. He said, all of that, let it not be once named among you as become saints. The word becometh here is the Old English word it means is appropriate for. As believers, it's not appropriate for us to be engaging in fornication, impurity, and greed. Now, holding your place here a moment, let's go to 1 Timothy. I know uh, Jerry was there in Sunday school, but I want to bring out another scripture. Just hold your place in Ephesians. Uh, We should be back in a moment. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. It's a little bit about this that Paul writes. 1 Timothy. Not too many pages, because some of the books are small, Ephesians. Uh, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy. So it's not very far. First and Timothy, chapter six. Let's uh, start in verse seven. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Talk about, the word gain usually has a significance of profit, financial profit. But here he's talking about something else that's profitable for us believers that's not financial. Godliness, he says, and contentment. Being satisfied with what we have, contentment. Now he says, verse 7, the word for means because we, Christians, and this is fact and true of everybody, but he's writing to Christians, we brought nothing into this world. So he reminds us when we came into this world, we didn't have anything. Now it may be true that some people are born into a family that has more material blessings, so to speak, and some have less. But we ourselves, when we came into the world, we brought nothing with us. Not one thing. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now, there are cultures, you know, like Egyptians and that. They used to believe they had the pyramids. They would bury their people with their possessions. So when we went to the next life, they could carry them with them. And if you, you know, bring up, dig up their places, the possessions they had are still there. They didn't carry anything with them. We won't carry anything with us. All that we have here, this is the only time we're going to have it. Verse 8, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. In other words, be satisfied with the fact that we have clothes for our body and food to eat. And I know that most of us have a lot more than that. Most of us have a, even a place to live. That we, When it storms, not everybody in the world has that, but most of us have a place to live. That you're in a place when it's storming, you're inside. We have a lot of things. But they... Verse 9, that will be rich. The word will here means desire. Now, rich is a relative term, right? Somebody said, well, how much, is, how much do you have to have to be rich? If you're a millionaire, are you rich? Or do you have to be a billionaire? Do you have to be a multi-billionaire? Um, to me, $10,000 is a lot of money. But anyway, you know, it just, it's all comparative. What is rich and what is poor? There's always somebody that has more than us and, and people that have less than us. What is rich? But it's, it's not so much as you have, but it's the thought process going on in the brain. So let's look at that. They that desire to be rich, fall, that is to have more than they have, that's essentially what that means, fall into temptation and a snare. In other words, it's a trap. They get stuck in this trap. They want to have more. Whatever amount they have, they just need a little bit more. If I just had a little bit more, I could have this, I could have that. If I just had a little bit more. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts, that are desires that are hurtful and end up being foolish, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
Verse 10. Here, here's where I want to get to is connected to the word covetousness. Verse 10. For the love of money. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. You can ret- trace all evil in this world to somebody's love for money. What is money, by the way? Money is power, right? We, we use different currencies in different countries, but it's power. And the more you have of it, the more power you have, the more you can do. The more People that have more, they can, they can influence things. They have a lot more power. It's that greed for more of that. That's where we get back to the word greed. And it's the root of all evil. And he says not, this should not should be any part of our Christian lives. This greed. Such which while some coveted after, that's that greed, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So if you'll come back with me to Ephesians. So when we read this, and he says in verse 4, neither, or verse 3, Ephesians 4, uh, 5, 3, excuse me, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, that greed, let it not be once named among you as become saints, as, as is appropriate for believers. It's not appropriate to have these things. Verse 4, he goes on, the list continues. Neither filthiness. Now, this word comes from the word obscene, so this, these are obscenities, should not be part of the Christian life. Nor foolish talking. Um, I can think of examples of some foolish talking. They don't benefit anything. When I was in seminary, um, several of my classmates um, often made fun of me. It didn't bother me any, but, it, but they did do it. They made fun of me because I studied the Bible all the time, and I was more interested in that than anything else. But they, they said, well, how can you prove the Bible is the word of God? And I went to 2 Timothy 3.16. I said, all scripture is inspired by God. I went to that. And they said, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible's the word of God. So to me, when they said that, I thought, well, I don't have no basis, any basis to talk to you. And they started asking all these questions. They said, if God is omnipotent, that means he's all-powerful. If God is all-powerful, can he build a rock bigger than he can move? That's foolish talking. That's not going to benefit anybody to talk about stuff like that. And they talk about, well, if Cain, they talked about, you know, go back to the Genesis. And they made fun of Genesis and said it's just a myth and there's no truth in any of that. And they said, well, who did, you know, Cain killed Abel, so there was just Cain. Well, who did Cain marry? Stuff like that. I just think it doesn't benefit anything. It's foolish talking. It's a waste of time. All right, let's go on. So filthiness, foolish talking, nor jesting. Now, that's not joking. Joking is different. It's not doesn't mean we can't kid around, because if it does, some of us are in big trouble. <laughs> this, <laughs> sorry, Joy. <laughs> and Jack, I can't leave any of you. But this, this word from the Greek means vulgarity. This is vulgar joking. This is, this is not just kidding around. That shouldn't be part of our lives as Christians. It says, which are not convenient, but rather what we should be doing instead is giving of thanks. So you think about all these things that consume our lives and be part, you think, part of Christians' lives? Yes, it can be. There's a lot of Christians that are living carnal lives. They're not in church anywhere. They're not getting fed anywhere. It's not that there are a lot of churches you can get fed at, but 
which is sad. That just shows the time we're in. We're in the Laodicean church period. We're very near the end of this age. And most churches have no idea that there's nothing spiritual there at all. It's a social gathering. They have lots of activities. They have lots of meals. Nothing wrong with getting together to eat. I, as you know, I love to eat. But nothing wrong with that. Eating and the basketball courts and the, all the things these churches have, there's nothing wrong with that. But some of the churches, that's all they have. There's nothing spiritual. I told you the church I pastored in Kentucky, this lady uh, came up to me in church. She said, I've been in the Baptist church since 1918, and I never heard of bringing your Bible to church. Because I always say, turn in your Bible. She said, you know, I didn't want to bring my Bible. I don't bring a Bible to church, so what am I going to turn in? 1918. All right. Giving of thanks. That's what should be, you know, when you think about the scripture, it keeps emphasizing positive things. Um, Not to go off board, you know, Vince, uh, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book about power of positive thinking, and then Robert Schuller read that book and started a church in California, which no longer, I don't think Crystal Cathedral has church anymore. But that whole thing, there's, it just went off board and went way, way beyond. But the Bible does talk about things being positive. It's just that they went to the point that, you know, say somebody died in your family, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to weep, the Bible says. And those are sad times. Well, you don't go up to a Christian who's mourning and say, hey, isn't it a great day today? And that's what that church did. No, it's not always a great day. There are bad days. There are hard days. And we, if we empathize with one another because we're part of the same body, we could feel that and know, oh, I know what it's like to lose somebody, and I know how it hurts, and we can empathize with that believer. That's what we should be doing. So that's something positive. Here it says, rather giving of thanks. Not just on Thanksgiving Day. We need to be thankful every day. Verse 5. For this ye know, that no, and by the way, these things he names here are the same things he just went over in verse 3. You'll just see him repeated as giving the name of the person involved in the activity. Look at the first one. Whoremonger. That goes with fornication. Unclean person. That goes with uncleanness. Covetous man. That goes with covetousness. You see, he's just aligning them right up. No whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who... And then he makes a little analogy about the person with the greed here, the covetous man. He says, who is an idolater. What does that mean? That person, that, that Christian that's concerned with this covetousness, with this greed, that is their idol. Their idol as Christians has become getting more, getting more. Every day of their life is consumed with how to get more than they have. That's their idol. But he says these three groups here. It says, none of them hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, we know, because you've studied this before, that this, this is not talking about being able to get to heaven. These are already Christians that we're talking about here. They're going to be in heaven. But if we as Christians continue in activity, refusing to confess it to God, shaking our fists, so to speak, metaphorically to God, saying, leave me alone, I'm going to live my life the way I want to, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It says they, they won't be able to rule and reign. They won't hear, well done, thou good and faithful servants, because they hadn't been faithful. 
We just don't want to be in that group, and he's reminding us. Now, I know in, in Ephesus, back in the first century, these things that are, were more commonplace, and I'm not saying they're not commonplace today, but they are commonplace, but these are people, the Ephesians, just like the Corinthians and other people in the area back then, they were coming from lives that, you know, they weren't Christian lives, so this is a new thing about believing in Jesus and the church. So these were things, a lot of them, they were part of their lives. They did these things and didn't really think a lot about them. Now, we're in an age where, you know, you can hear all kinds of things in the news and report of people that have churches and weird ideas of what a church is and what they can do. It's, it's crazy. I don't think our founding fathers, when they said freedom of religion, um, intended some of these wacko things where, that some of these churches start and do. They just make, make, make up any belief they want to. And because they're a church, they're allowed to they're call themselves a church, so they're allowed to do whatever they want. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with vain words. Now, this is similar to where Paul reminds us about not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Vain words mean empty. They're, it's, it's nothing. There are a lot of people who turn on the radio or the television because it's a, a person who claims to be a, a man of God or and in many cases, women of God, and they're teaching something and people are just believing whatever it is. But a lot of it's emptiness. It's not the word of God. He said, don't let anyone deceive you. It says, the word for, because of these things comes the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. And you remember this morning when Jerry read in Sunday school, he read the the scripture which had that same phrase in it, the children of disobedience. So, the same reason he got angry with Israel. Don't let him get angry at us because we're deceived. You know, Israel was... Remember Moses went up on the mount? And they said, well, he's not coming back. So... They, did, they convinced the people to melt all the jewelry they got from Egypt and make a golden calf and decided to worship that. And it says they rose up to play, and that doesn't mean monopoly, but anyway. <laughs> so that's what they did. And he was only gone 40 days and 40 nights, by the way. That's a, it's, a, it's, a pro, it's a time in the Bible that has a time of testing. He was gone 40 days. But, you know, when you don't know when something's going to happen, you think it's forever. We don't know when the Lord's coming back, so to us it seems like forever, but he's going to come back. We don't want to, when he comes back, find us like the Israelites, giving up on God and deciding to do something a different way. So, he was angry with them. And so they had to spend 40 years because of it in the wilderness. 40 years, and they, they, they died and could not enter the promised land. Promised land is not a type of heaven. It's a type of the kingdom of heaven. We, as believers, don't want to die in the wilderness and not get to enter the promised land, which means we should not do things that, like Israel, God got angry with. Verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with them. Now, this is a warning to us. Because there are a lot of people out there like this, and we don't want to be partaking with them, being part of it. That's not going to help us. Verse 8, almost out of time. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light. And the phrase is important, in the Lord. They didn't get light on their own. So he's trying to say as believers, now it's different. You're in the light, and it's his light. So he says, walk as children of light. In other words, we're God's children. We need to behave like God's children. 
Now he says parenthetically. Word for means because the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So three things he mentions here, goodness and righteousness and truth, the fruit of the Spirit. That's as opposed to the fruit of the, the works of the flesh. So the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul writes in other places, is contrasted with the works of the flesh, which are all been named here. But now, since we read the parentheses now, let's go back and read verse 8 and jump right to verse 10. The parentheses is there to make sure we are reminded of that. But verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. That word proving, it's used other places in the Bible, it has to do with testing. But the idea here is try our best to learn. Learn what is acceptable. That's a hyphenated word in the Greek, well-pleasing. How are we going to learn what is pleasing to God from the word? What we're doing here this morning, that's what we're supposed to be doing when we come to Sunday school, when we're, when we're studying the word at home or we're in a Bible study. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So we just mentioned in that verse, in parentheses, verse 9, the fruit of the Spirit. Here it says, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Bring it out in the light. Make sure people are aware of it. Bring it out so it is seen. Verse 12, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, But he says, all things that are reproved, that is made attention to, brought out to the light, are made manifest, that is revealed, by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. He says, that's something we all know. If it's dark, you can't see anything. You turn on the light, you can see. The scripture that we have as believers is is, is connected to this, the idea of the light. And we need to have this light, and we need, otherwise, we can't see what all these things are that need to be brought out. Let's see if we can. Um, let's read one more scripture, because there's no good place to stop. But we'll do verse 14, because it quotes from Isaiah. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleep. Now, we all sleep at night, so what does that mean? So, it's not talking about the idea of, you know, literally sleeping at night. But, you know, if a Christian gets tired and they're not doing what God wants us to do and we're not being faithful to him, that's an idea of sleeping. It says, Awake thou that sleep and arise from the dead. Wow. You mean we could be spiritually dead and not doing anything for God, apparently? And Christ shall give you light. We need that light in our Christian lives to be pleasing to him. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word this morning and the time in it. Thank you for reminding us those things that are the unfruitful works of darkness that are not pleasing to you but reminding us also what is appropriate for us as Christians, what we should do. We thank you for those reminders, and we pray that we would be faithful to them So, in, in doing the fruits of the Spirit so that you are pleased and that we would hear at the judgment seat, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.